Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Weeks, you'll know that we have done a short series. We've called it Simply Christmas, and in this series, we have looked at the first few verses of John's Gospel. And we're going to continue with that today. Uh, so two weeks ago, Owen spoke. Um, last week, we had Ben Goodyear, who's from St. Paul's Church. He spoke. Today, it's me. And then next week, Owen is actually going to finish this uh, short series looking at the final verse in the section of John's Gospel we're looking at. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn to John chapter 1. Although, don't worry, because it should hopefully come up on the screen. Great. So... I'm going to be reading from verses 14 to 18. 18 is the verse that Owen's going to look at next week, so it's on the screen for context. Owen, don't worry, I'm not about to to take your sermon. Right, so I'll just read this to us. So John 1, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's quickly pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, you give us your word so that we can grow in our understanding and love of you. And that is my prayer this morning, that we would learn more about you, and Lord, that we would fall more in love with you as we look at your word together. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to be looking mostly at verse 14, Um, and I'm going to say, I'm going to make a statement, you can agree or disagree, I think it's fairly certainly the case that what John says in that first part of verse 14 is the most significant thing that has ever been said by anybody ever. Ever. Think of anybody you like. Think of anything that's ever been said. What John says there in those first few words of verse 14 is more significant. The word became flesh. Owen spoke in the first part of this series and he explained really clearly for us from the earlier verses that the word is God. The word is Jesus. So God became flesh. You will not hear anything more significant ever spoken. God became flesh. But having given the build-up about the fact that this is the most significant thing ever, maybe you're expecting to feel overwhelmed by what you then hear, God became flesh. And maybe most of us are not feeling massively overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, that's the most significant thing ever said. And I think the reason maybe we don't have that feeling when we hear that truth that God became flesh, is because actually we often hear these verses, they're well known to us, we often hear them, I think, in a quite nice kind of Christmas service environment, where there are mince pies and mulled wine, and the various things that would distract us a little bit from the significance of what we're actually thinking about and reflecting on, that God became flesh. And actually, I'd go even slightly further and say, even our services which look at the nativity... 
even they can in some ways take away a little bit of the significance of what that actually says. Now, before you start saying, how dare someone say that something in the Bible might not be helpful for us, I'm not saying that nativity is true, it's biblical, and it is very helpful for us. But I think there's a sense in which our, the way we think about the nativity story can, if we're not careful, even as Christians, slightly take away the significance of what it is for God to become flesh. So we love the story, so I will go there quickly. The story of the angel coming to Mary, giving the news that she would be um, giving birth to God's son, that he would be the saviour of the world, that uh, Mary then with her fiancé Joseph, they go on this journey to Bethlehem. She's heavily pregnant and that Bethlehem needs to give birth. And we know it well, don't we, that there's nowhere apart from the stable for her to have the baby. So in the stable they go and there's the horses and the cattle and the sheep there. And then the shepherds hear the news from the angels and they all come to worship the new baby king. There's some wise men from a far off land. They find out and get news of this king of kings that's been born. They find a, or a star leads them towards the place they need to go. It's an amazing story, and it's true. And yet somehow, maybe it's because we learn the story when we're young, as children, even though we know it's true and distinct from any other story we hear of, maybe somehow in our minds we still place it alongside other kind of stories we hear in the same age when we're growing. And we kind of almost have a slight soft focus. When we think of the nativity, it's, it's nice and it's warm and it's... It's, a, it's kind of got that soft focus to it. And actually, we lose something of the absolute significance and magnitude of what it is for God to become flesh. C.S. Lewis, he writes this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of particular height, with hair of a particular colour, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Lewis has got a great way with words. He's... I guess suggesting that if we want to comprehend something of the magnitude of God becoming flesh, try and think of yourself becoming like a slug or a crab. It it kind of, to be honest, it stretches our mind to a place we can't go. And that's the point. This is so significant that God would become flesh. And I hope as we look at that simple statement in a bit more detail this morning, I hope it inspires us to worship. So at the end of this service, we're going to Um, take communion together and have a bit more time of worship and I hope that this section of scripture this particular truth really does inspire us to worship a God who became flesh so Jesus he is not a created man again Owen helped us understand that more the first section he's not created man he is God the creator who took on human form and it's absolutely essential we understand the truth of that Because if we don't, if we aren't quite clear in our understanding that God would become flesh, he actually did it. Everything else within Christianity starts to fall apart and unravel. And I hope again as we look at this this morning that might become clear to us.
So in looking at that idea of God becoming flesh, I'll do it through a simple question. Why did, he do it? Why did God do it? Why did he become flesh? And I guess, I mean, actually, if you go to like a, some kind of Bible commentaries and various other books like that, and you look at the incarnation, you'll see lots of reasons the Bible gives for the, the reason of God becoming flesh. I think when I looked at particular one, there are like seven or eight subheadings. So there's quite a lot the Bible says about why God became flesh. But I want to kind of look at one which I think this particular verse um, speaks of the most. So if we look at the end of verse 14, sorry, the numbers aren't on there, but the bit where it says, he came full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this idea that Jesus, in coming to earth, God brought grace and truth. And during the summer, and it might be slightly earlier than the summer actually, earlier this year, our small group that meets on a Thursday, we looked through the book of Romans together. And as we looked through the book of Romans, a particular theme kind of came out a few times. And we kind of described it as God's dilemma. I don't know if you've ever thought that God had a dilemma. I don't know if that's sound doctrine. I don't know, but let's, let's go with it. God had a dilemma. And we looked at that together, and we looked at, you know, what God did. So very quickly, where we got to in our kind of discussions as a small group, this truth that God is a holy God. He's completely perfect in his ways, and he has complete perfect standards that he requires all of his children to follow. And he made that standard really clear to us. We see there the law was given through Moses. So the law, we kind of often think of the Ten Commandments. There are many more laws as well as that in the Old Testament. God gave Moses the law, making really clear his perfect standards as a perfect God. But the problem is, as the book of Romans makes really clear, all of us have fallen short of that standard. So there's a well-known verse, all have sinned and fall short of the standards of God, Romans 3. And going further from that, then Romans explains what the consequence is, that the consequence of falling short of his holy and perfect standards um, is death. So the wages of sin is death. And that might seem a little bit harsh, but actually when you think about it, it makes sense. God, the giver of life, has his ways, and if you want to or not necessarily wants, but if you are outside of his ways, the one who gives life, you're outside of him, and the natural consequence would be death. So it kind of makes sense that God, who is perfect, would say, here is my standards, and they are perfect, and they are true, and he wants us to keep them. It's his, it, says, it says elsewhere in the Bible, it's his desire that no one would perish. But there is a consequence when we fall outside of his holy and perfect ways. So that is the dilemma. What does God do about it? And we might think there are two options that God could do to address that dilemma he faces. So the first one, and by the way, they both come across, or they both talk into this whole idea of grace and truth. So the first option God might want to do is to say, okay, well, I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to get rid of all of this creation. I'm going to start again. Okay, now... If God did that, that would be absolutely just and it would absolutely be true to his holy standards. 
So there we see this idea that truth, you know, God could wipe out all of his creation and start again. And he would be totally just in doing it. It's us who have fallen short of his standards. The problem with that option for God is he's also a God of mercy, a God of love and a God of compassion. And it's his desire that none would perish. So yes, he could demonstrate truth. He could demonstrate justice in completely starting again. But he wouldn't be demonstrating the mercy and grace that he is. That isn't really an option. So we might go to the second option, which would be, okay, well, why doesn't God just lower the standards then? So God has got his standards. No one has kept it. It's his desire that none would perish. So why doesn't he just lower the standards and make it a little bit easier to get there? Perhaps he could change the rules and say, well, as long as you do enough good stuff that outweighs the bad, maybe that's enough. Or you could think of any other standards you want, but that might be one. It's one that actually you often sort of kind of hear. And you do something good and maybe God will take you in. Like this idea that if we outweigh the bad with the good, that's enough. That might appeal to us in the sense that it speaks of his mercy, his love, his grace for us. But the problem is it doesn't deal with this issue of justice and truth. Because he is not being true to his holy and perfect ways. God, um, Phil spoke about God's being perfect in his ways. So that's a, almost a slip of the tongue there. <laughs> Phil is not God. Phil is absolutely not God. But um, Phil spoke of God's perfect ways as being so essential. And so we're so glad his ways are perfect. I'm so glad, actually, God didn't take the other option and lower his standards. He is a God who is perfect. So this idea of lowering standards, it might appeal to the mercy and the grace, but it doesn't keep with him being true to himself being a God of truth, a God of justice. So what does God do? That is the dilemma. Neither option works. And obviously we all know the answer, and I've told us this passage has even given us the answer. The answer is it came through Jesus Christ. That was his solution to this problem, that he wanted to bring both truth and grace into this situation, and the only way he could do it was God becoming flesh through Jesus Christ. Because the death of Jesus, as we're all familiar with, it is our punishment, it is the punishment of man that he has taken upon himself. It's that justice we see in the cross. The justice that required a penalty of death for the sins of mankind was paid. God didn't lessen the penalty. He didn't kind of change the actual penalty that needed to be paid. He kept the truth of his perfect ways and death resulted. And it resulted in Jesus. He took the punishment on himself. God didn't get away from this idea that he is a God of truth and justice. But what about the grace? Well, we know that actually what the Bible says, what the gospel says to us, is that actually if we, by faith, accept what Jesus has done for us, the punishment he took, then we ourselves are free from that punishment. There is no price left to pay. The whole penalty has been paid, and through faith we can receive that. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is an amazing exchange that takes place at the cross, and it's only possible because God became flesh. God became one of us. He takes our sin from us and in place he gives us 
his righteousness, that we can be righteous amongst God the Father for eternity without any fear of judgment, any fear of having to make some appeasement to him, without any sense that we've got to pay anything towards our position with him. The price has been fully paid. It is his gift to us. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in the coming of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, we see the incredible outworking of his salvation plan for us, that through Jesus Christ, he would keep both truth and grace, and that would be extended to us, that we might know him and be saved by him. It's an amazing thing, and we really must always remember the significance that God became flesh. So that's the key exchange. I talked about an exchange. At the cross, we see that most clearly, this idea that an exchange took place. But actually, I've just, I've just been struck recently by thinking there are so many continuous ways in which exchange takes place. So at the cross is the most fundamental. But actually, in our day-to-day lives, at every moment of, of our days, God offers us as, as an exchange through Jesus Christ. Because he says, and actually we heard, I think, a similar verse spoken of already this morning. I think it might have been perhaps Emma, I can't remember. He says we can pass our burdens on to him. We can continually pass our burdens on to God through Jesus Christ. It's not just this exchange that happened at the cross which has a, an eternal um, salvation for us. Even now, today, even tomorrow, even the day after, he says, come, give me your burdens and see what I will give you. And that is through the work of Christ. He says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Matthew 11, Jesus himself says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God is a God of continuous exchanges with us. I love the bit in this verse which says, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. It's grace that never ends. This exchange, there's a one for all time exchange at the cross where we receive our salvation and there's also this sense that every day he is pouring out new grace upon us. One commentary that I read on that verse said, it's almost like you feel you've got to the end of grace and then there's more grace. You get to the end of that grace and there's more grace. However much you repeat the mistakes you make, there is grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. That is the work of Jesus Christ, God who became flesh for us. And so we know how it goes, don't we, that the word became flesh and dwelt with us as a baby tiger. Of course he didn't come as a baby tiger. But there is a point to that silly comment, which is, if it's only about him becoming flesh, physical, God the Spirit became something physical, why not a tiger? Why did he not come as a baby tiger? Now, I love tigers, by the way. I think they're in God's top five of all things he's ever made. Um, Along with olives, (laughs) yogurts, orange juice, and people. That's his top five. So tigers are up there. 
Um, he could have come as a baby tiger, but he didn't. And obviously, there's like a very serious theological point, which you know, theologians would say, you know, it was man's sin to be atoned for. He came as a man. Like, I get that bit. But actually, there is a very other helpful reason for us that God came as a man. He came as one of us. And that is we can see God and understand him in a way that we couldn't before. We can look at Christ fully seeing God. So everything you look at in Jesus is God. There is nothing about God outside of what you see in him. There's nothing in him that is outside of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. And it's so helpful that he came as a person that we can identify with him and understand God in a way that we couldn't. Now, there's still a mystery in Christ, which we'll one day see in its fullness. But it's so helpful, isn't it, that we can look at Jesus as a man and say, I can identify with that. I'm so grateful for a God who has made himself known to me in a way I can understand. And there's also another sense in which it's, great, it's helpful for us to know that God knows what it's like to be us. He came as a man, and so he can identify with the struggles that we go through in life. You know, Jesus knew what it was to feel lonely. On the way to the cross, his closest friends left him. They ran away. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed and rejected. One of his closest friends gave him over. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to mourn the death of a close friend. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I wonder whether those who divided up the verses and the chapters left that one so small, so short, it stood out. God, the creator of the universe, wept at the death of his friend. Jesus felt anger when he went to his father's temple and saw that it was meant to be a house of prayer, but it had been turned into some money-making thing. So if you're feeling angry about the way things are in this world, that God's standard is not being kept to, that's good, because God knows that. God feels the same. Jesus felt complete compassion. He had been out all day helping people, and the crowds kept coming, and he kept feeling compassion for them. You know, I'm so grateful that God knows what it is like to be human. It's so helpful for us. We can see just such an amazing outworking of God's plan in the coming of Jesus Christ. There are so many others so many other examples of what Jesus experienced that helps us as we go through this difficult life together. You know, in fact, John explained the very reason why he actually wrote his gospel. Towards the end, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these ones were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I don't know if the band wants to, wherever they are, kind of come towards the front. We're going to spend a bit of time worshipping him in response through communion together. I love this, which is written by an American pastor, um, a guy called John MacArthur. He says, The infinite one became finite. The eternal one entered time. The omnipresent one became confined in a space of a human body. The invisible one became visible. And we're going to worship the visible God who made himself known to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you want to stand.
you'll know how we do this here with the communion. So during the song, um, whenever you're ready, come forward and take the bread and the wine. And as we do it, maybe you just want to just say it to God. I thank you for what you have done. That you, Jesus, would come to earth. That you would take my place. That you would uphold the truth and the justice of a perfect God. But extend the grace and the mercy to me that I go free. Maybe you also want to just remind yourself of the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. A God who knows how you're feeling right now because he walked this same earth. And you can bring your burdens to him and he will gladly take them and he will gladly give you rest in return you have just listened to a Beacon Church recording if you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events please visit our website which is beacon-church.org you can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter Facebook and Instagram You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.